Hi, this is Dave Olson. I'm the senior leader of Heartland Church located in Ankeny, Iowa. I hope the following message challenges, encourages, and ultimately changes you. Thanks for joining us. We are in the middle of a series. I don't know what to call it. Uh, Here's the essence of it. This is what we're going after. I believe that God is taking many of you into a new season, many of us into a new season. And the, the theme that's been in my heart is that the new season will demand a new you. The you that you used to be is not fit for the season you're stepping into. And so we've got to grow into our future. God wants us to go from glory to glory. And too often, we end up plateauing. And we've been talking about how your new season, your destiny, uh, at the threshold of your destiny, lies your insecurities. And you've got to step over those discomforts. You've got to step through those to get into your future. And so I want to talk about this morning the connection between your personal transformation and you being a vehicle of transformation in other people's lives. You can put it this way. The difference between God changing you and you being a vehicle of ministry in the lives of others. And so that's what we're going to look at. So let's pray. Father, we just thank you this morning. I pray that you would speak to us very clearly. God, I ask that you would ignite our heart. God, inflame our hearts with passion for what you have for us, God. Lord, deliver us from settling for false finish lines, for the comfort of the ordinary, and Lord, call us deeper, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, I'm gonna need the grace of God this morning. I went down to Burlington last night, uh, preached down there, and I got home late, drove through the storm, and I got up early, and uh, so... I'm, I'm kind of jumping between two messages here, so Jesus, help me. Okay, Let, let's jump in here. Character is personal. Culture is relational. Character is about what happens in you. Culture is what happens between you. There's a lot of talk about culture today, even in the church There's a lot of talk about it in the business sector, in the corporate world, and there's a lot of talk about that in the church. But we've got to be careful that we don't throw phrases around that we don't really understand. So character is about what happens in you, but culture is what happens between you. And if what happens in you doesn't change what happens between you, what happens in you will die. God wants to take your personal transformation and make it relational transformation because he wants to change your me and your we so that we together can change the world. And the bridge between what happens in you and what God does with you has to affect your relationships. And so uh, that's what culture is all about. Helping develop culture is the role of discipleship but helping, or helping develop character, rather, is the role of discipleship, but helping develop culture is the role of leadership. And so we need to have a vision for changing what happens between us. Character that doesn't translate into culture will at best build solid believers who are relationally dysfunctional. I want you to think about that. Character that does not translate into culture will at best build solid believers who are relationally dysfunctional. 
You may be really healthy when you're alone. But if you want to be a world changer, you have to be healthy with other people. Sometimes what we call self-denial is actually selfishness. Because if your self-denial becomes a cover for someone else's dysfunction, then that's not self-denial, that's complicity in abuse. There's times where we need to swallow and build character and just swallow things. There's other times where we need to speak up and deal with things. And that's where it becomes culture. It's where our character is translated into culture. Character that doesn't translate into culture will at best build solid believers who are relationally dysfunctional. They're really good people alone. (laughs) It will greatly diminish their impact. The natural flow of the kingdom is to transform a person, then affect their relationships, and then in turn establish healthy relational culture that can begin to touch the world. That's why we're not, we're, there's, there's no such thing as a lone ranger in the kingdom. You've got to be connected to a local body of believers. You've got to have people you're running with. And the fact is, you can't do that on the internet. You can, you can feed off the internet. You can get a lot of things out of podcasts, but you can't do life with a digital congregation. And the fact is, there are things that God wants to touch in your life that he cannot touch outside of relationships. Now, we've talked about this before. 1 John chapter 1, where John says this. He says, walk in the light as he is in the light. In other words, be transparent. Have genuine relationships. Be transparent. Don't don't bring a fake you to the table. Don't bring a pretend you. Don't don't have things that you're hiding. You got to have some people. You don't have to do it with everybody. You don't have to get up in front of everybody and share your dirty laundry, but you better have some people that you can share your dirty laundry with. So he says, walk in the light as he is in the light. There's no shadow of turning within him. In God, there's light. And so there's nothing hidden when we walk in the light. So he said, if we walk in transparency, we walk in the light, then you will have fellowship one with another. This is John chapter, 1 John chapter 1. Transparency will lead to intimacy. Genuine relationships are the result of you being open about who you really are. And you can't have a genuine relationship unless you're being honest with somebody in your life. The level of your transparency is the measure of your intimacy. The measure of true relationship that you have is the measure of how transparent you're really being. Because people only have a relationship with what you'll reveal. And if you're only revealing a part of you, then they only have a relationship with part of you. In fact... The whole idea, you know, this, this thing we call integrity. The root word is integer and integrated. They're all the same, uh, the same type of word. They come from the same root word. And the idea is that my, when I'm walking in integrity, I bring my whole person to my decisions. And I bring my whole person to my relationships. If I'm going to have integrity 
in my relationships, then I've got to be honest and open and real in my relationships. And if there's something in my life that I'm uncomfortable with, a portion of me that I'm going to hide from you, and then I present the portion as the whole, that's not integrity. I'm not integrated. I'm only bringing a pretend me. And so there is a, uh, there is a, uh, a limit to the intimacy that I can have. Here's the danger. It's the portion that you hide that the enemy will hide in. And it's only when you become reintegrated and you walk in integrity in your relationships that God can deal with those portions of you that the enemy hides in. Because there are things in our life we don't even realize God wants to deal with. We don't even realize we're dysfunctional until we come across some other functional people. If we don't have something to compare our experience with, we don't know if it's normal or not. Here's the danger. All of you thought your family was normal <laughs> until you started hanging around with other people. That's why you need some relationships outside of your family. Because then you're going to realize, whoa, we're not as functional as I thought. So what does John say? He says, walk in the light as he is in the light. Then you'll have fellowship with one another. And then the blood of Jesus will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So transparency leads to intimacy. And that intimacy is a prerequisite to purity. There are things in your life God cannot touch outside of relationships. And so one of the major tools the enemy uses to keep you in bondage is shame. If he can keep you in hiding, he can keep you in bondage. And so what we need to do is we need to bring the whole us to the table. Now again, you don't do that with everybody in your life. You don't get up at the office tomorrow morning and make an announcement about some dysfunctional habit you have in your life. But you got to have somebody in your life that you can talk about those things with. And it's only in the context of relationships that God can begin to really do the surgery he wants to do. There are things in your life you don't know you even have until you bring them into relationship. I've often said, I didn't have an anger problem until I married this woman on the front row. I wanted to think it was her fault. But I was, there was a, I had my life, but there was this portion of my life when I would close the door after a day of work at Teen Challenge and I would lock the door and I'd turn around and it was all about me. Nobody was putting a demand on that part of my life until I got married. And I'd come home after a day, and I'd turn around and lock the door, and there she was. And at first it was real enjoyable until we had an argument. And all of a sudden I realized I've got an anger problem. The Lord told me just before we got married, he said, Kathy will be the finger with which I probe your heart. I thought, wow, Lord, that's not romantic. That's not what I'm signing up for. But that is part of marriage. That's part of relationship. Outside of those intimate relationships, there's things in our life we don't even realize are there. And, but it's in the relating that those things are kicked to the surface. We all seem very godly when we're alone. I'm a really loving, patient person alone. And God, in his infinite wisdom, he gives you a spouse. If you do it God's way, he gives you a spouse, then he gives you kids. Because a spouse, at least you can reason with them. But a newborn, there is no reasoning with them. Evan 
when we first had our, we had our first child, he would take a big exhale about 4 p.m. and scream till about 6 a.m. Ah. <laughs> uh. So what God began with my wife, he furthered the work with children. And so relationships are essential. And here's the thing. What God does in you has to translate between you for it to be permanent. And the reason a lot of people have encounters that don't result in transformation is because they, it breaks down when it gets to the relational element. What God does in them in their private time with Jesus or what God does in them around the altars or what God does in them when they're sitting and hearing a sermon or whatever, fill in the blanks, however God does it in you, it must translate to a change between you or it will die there. The final frontier of your transformation is your relationships. That's why Jesus talked about relational tension in regards to your relationship with him. He said, blessed are those who leave father, mother, sister, brother for the sake of me. He knew that following him was gonna create tension. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Not everybody will take the journey in your transformation with you. Not everybody will go with you as God deals on, on your life. It's not to say that there's not a lot that will go with you, but I'm telling you, even in the best of relationships, the personal transformation will create a tension in those relationships. I remember year, when uh, we were with Teen Challenge, we used to have this saying, many, many of you have heard this before, about the canoe ride of life. You're floating down the little river of life and all of a sudden you have some traumatic thing happen on the right side of your canoe. So what do you do? From then on, you're bent. You're leaning over. You're, you're always anticipating some tragedy on the right side of your life. So what do you do? You're attracted to people who lean to the left. You're attracted to someone who has dysfunction on the other side, so you balance each other out, and you kind of sit upright, because you're both, there's a tension in the relationship, and you think you're functional, and you're just floating down through life, and all of a sudden, one of you goes to church and gets touched, and you sit up a little bit, and your spouse, your partner, is drinking river water, <laughs> and they have a vested interest in saying, sit back down. Because they didn't sign up for the new you, they signed up to spend life with the old you. And this is a very real dynamic that we often don't think about, we don't talk about enough. The final frontier of your personal transformation is your relationships. That's where it's made permanent, that's where it's established where you begin to take what God did in you and you begin to exert it in those relationships and you begin to establish that change in your life and it's gonna change the dynamics of those relationships. And we've gotta push through that change. I used to tell the guys at Teen Challenge, you're not really changed until the people closest to you expect the new you to walk through the door. The Teen Challenge I worked at was out in Colfax, and we started something that no other Teen Challenge had. They still have it. I don't know if any other Teen Challenge has picked it up, but they need to. It was called Wives Weekend. 
Because what would happen is guys would come into Teen Challenge, they were drug addicts, alcoholics, had some kind of addiction in their life, and often it was their wife who actually prayed them into the program, or their, their mother, their father prayed them into Teen Challenge. And they would, God would begin to touch them and change them. And then they'd go home on their five-day pass, and they'd want to reassert their leadership in the home. And the wife was like, wait a minute, I prayed you in, buddy. I'm not about to let you take the reins of this thing. Because in the wife's mind, she hasn't witnessed the transformation. So she's still out, she's interacting with that individual as the, the person they used to be. And it creates tension, even in the best of relationships. I remember when I, I went to Teen Challenge, I was a, a homeless alcoholic when I got saved, and my mom and dad prayed me in, and I went off to Teen Challenge. I came back home to visit, and then I, I went off to Bible school. And I remember I was home from Bible school one time. I'd been walking with the Lord for several years, and I came in one night. I'd gone out with some of my old buddies, and I was witnessing to them. Got home late, my dad's sitting in the recliner. I said, hey, Dad, what you doing? Sat down, we're just talking. He said, you know, Dave, it's just now that I don't hold my breath wondering if you're gonna come through that door drunk. When he said it, I was hurt for just a split second. And I thought, man, did, did you think I was blowing smoke in your face all this time? Man, I've been serious as a heart attack about this thing. But I, I didn't say all that. This is what was going on in my mind. But I quickly thought, you know, here, I, I had conned my parents so many times that they weren't expecting the change. They didn't, they didn't understand the transformation. And the final frontier of that transformation was establishing that in the relationship. And I needed to resist their interactions with me as the old person I used to be. Not in a resentful way, but I needed to hold the line. I needed to act like the new me. And often it will be the people that love you the most that will continue to treat you like the person you used to be. And it's in holding the line on that and being that person that you're called to be that that thing is made permanent in your life. And it's not until they accept the new you that transformation has really happened. That's the difference between an experience and transformation, an event and something that's permanent in your life. You've got to push through that relational conflict. I remember there was one guy in Teen Challenge, he had, his wife, his little, little uh, girl had gotten saved. She was just a little tiny little squirt and she had gotten saved. Someone took her to vacation Bible school or something and so she started telling her mom and dad to come to church. Well, the dad, he wasn't interested. He was a rodeo rider and a, a wild guy. And, uh, but the mom started going to church. She got saved and she would get up. She had five children and she would get up in the service and she would say, please pray for my husband. He needs to, get, he needs to meet Jesus and he's running around in the bars. He's cheating on me. And people, man, that whole church was just contending for him. He had a, their pastor was a godly man Native American pastor. And uh, finally, this guy got radically saved and came to Teen Challenge. And he wasn't there probably two months, and he started getting word from friends back home that his wife was now running around the bars and sleeping around. And it so tormented him. He didn't last very long. He left the program and went back home to get his wife. And next thing you know, he's back in the bars running around, and she's back in church. Pray for my husband. 
He got saved, but now he backslid. So what happened? God answered those prayers. He came back to Teen Challenge. You know what happened? She went back to the bars and started running around. Why? Because she only knew how to operate in one role. Her view of herself is she was a victim and she needed to have a victimizer. She was, a, she was an abuse victim, so she needed an abuser. And so what she would do is she would operate in such a way as to elicit that behavior out of her husband. The tragedy is, is he ended up leaving Teen Challenge. I think it was on his third time. I just found out the other day he's passed away. Their marriage dissolved, and I believe she's back in church serving the Lord and having the church gather around her. Pray for me. My husband left me, and now he's dead, and I'm a single mom. And the tragedy is that, to a very great degree, it wasn't that she was insincere. She was just very dysfunctional in how she operated in life. She viewed herself in one way. And so when we're, we're growing up in our home of origin, there are certain dynamics to those, those homes, and there's roles that we take on. And you take that role that is often crystallized in childhood, and you bring that into your adult relationships. And part of what Jesus wants to do, he doesn't just want to touch you and teach you doctrine. He wants to transform how you see you and begin to change how you relate in your relationships. It's not good enough that we get saved and heaven is our eternal destination. He wants to change how you operate in relationship with other people. And often that transformation will upset the apple cart in the relationships you already have. But we've got to stay the course and we've got to be patient with those we love as we're changing. But we've got to establish that change. And so this whole thing about culture is very, very, very important. Healthy culture. And all that is, all that healthy culture is, is it's adopting healthy relational rules. It's the, it's the principles by which you navigate your relationships. That's what culture is. It's your value system realized in your relationships. And when you have healthy values and you hold to them, you will have healthy relationships. And those that aren't willing to abide by those healthy values will abandon the relationship and you'll begin to attract health as you become healthy inside you will send out signals and you will attract healthy people outside to you and to the extent that you are healthy or unhealthy well you will attract that that's why we say that your relationships are a mirror of your emotional health i said it a couple weeks ago those of you who are single get healthy before you get married. Man, for that matter, get healthy before you date. Because your relationships really are a mirror of your own self-perception. Healthy people attract healthy people. Emotional health is a protection against demonic oppression. Let me say it again. Emotional health 
I'm talking about letting God deal with you and taking this, the principles of Scripture and beginning to apply them and then begin to assert those principles in your relationships. When you have that, it actually becomes a safeguard against demonic oppression because much of what we call demonic oppression is simply the fruit of unhealthy relationships. No, I'm not saying the enemy isn't involved. I'm not saying that that negates the involvement of a very real enemy. I'm just saying that defines his entry point. And often the, the way the enemy gets intrusive in your life is through relationships. And so if you'll begin to deal with you and get healthy on the way you interact with people, if you'll begin to establish healthy boundaries in your life, then you're going to attract healthy people. Some of you are around. How many of you have ever heard Dan Moeller? Raise your hand. Dan, we need to have Dan back. I need to give him a call. Dan Moeller preaches the clearest gospel I've ever heard. He is amazing. And he's the real deal, man. I mean, he, he's just a, he is a freak of supernature. He really is. But Dan's emphasis is compartmentalized. And rightly so. It's his calling. Dan is a wonderful pastoral teacher that teaches you how to live as a healthy believer. But his whole message is, you die to yourself. You don't need anything from anybody because Jesus is everything. And so it makes you free personally. It makes you, you, you people can't mess with you because, hey, I'm looking to Jesus. I don't need anything from you. Anything, any interaction is benevolent. I'm going to love you. I don't, I'm not looking to you to love me. But there's a limit to that theology because we're not just people living alone with Jesus. There's another dynamic to this thing called the Christian life, and that is our relationships. Many of you have read Dan, Danny Silk. Dan and Danny. We're, we're doing our, our Dan's this morning. Danny Silk has a lot of great pastoral teaching on how to make the body healthy. He was, for many years, he was the pastoral teacher out at Bethel, out in Redding, California. Bill Johnson, who uh, operates in a very strong apostolic gift, took this church of 2,000 people, and immediately they went into revival. He canceled youth group. He canceled the nursery. He canceled children's church. They had nothing but revival. Danny said it was all about stand them up, knock them down, stand them up, knock them down. Revival hit, and they, they had tremendous growth. They went from 2,000 to 1,000 in a very short amount of time. <laughs> and truth be told, they went from 2,000 to 400, and then there were 600 new people that came. So they lost well over half the church. Today, they're a church of about 11,000, 12,000 touching the world. But they were shifting the culture away from a pastoral church to an apostolic center that was based on revival. Their whole banner was bringing revival to the world, and they've done it. But it was very, uh, just, it was upheaval relationally. So what did Bill do? Is they have all these people leaving the church. He hires a prophet named Chris Vallotton. That didn't help. They started a school which did feed the church, so finally, they hire Danny Silk to become the pastoral guy. And so he came in and he began to rebuild the systems, rebuild a nursery and children's church. And he taught a lot about boundaries, healthy relationship. And he was really 
to a very large degree, the architect of the culture out at Bethel. And that was how they closed the back door. He has a great book called um, The Culture of Honor. And he talks about the, one of the dangers of apostolic churches is they have open heavens but open back doors. So they had to staff that with a pastoral gift that would begin to tend to the needs of the people. But if you read Dan Moeller, who has tremendous insight and great pastoral teaching, and Danny Silk, who has tremendous insight and great pastoral teaching, there comes a point at which they're at odds with each other. And I've often thought, we've had them both in, I thought, I want to have them both in together, <laughs> throw them in a room together, lock the door, and <laughs> hear them argue. Because there is a difference, but here's the difference. Dan is dealing with the individual. Danny is dealing with the culture. Dan addresses character, Dan Moeller. Danny Silk is dealing with culture. Dan Moeller is your relationship with Jesus. Keep your heart right. Danny Silk, let's create a culture that we can pull others into and they can encounter God. And so what that means is that we begin to tend to our own soul and at times we've got to speak up and establish healthy boundaries in our relationships. Now, there's a balance to this. Just like Dan Moeller has a limit to the application of his teaching, what Danny emphasizes on boundaries because often what we call boundaries is just a cover for being selfish. You ever had someone tell you they're, they're just practicing good boundaries, but in actuality they don't want to lift a finger to help anybody? That's not boundaries. Be honest with yourself. And so we need to have this tension in our life and really allow the Spirit of God to deal with us so that he can develop both character and healthy culture, character in us and healthy culture around us. We need both of those in our life. But the key to being transformed from God doing something in you to God really using you to touch the world is first what he does in you has to touch your most personal relationships. It has to touch your home, your friendships, your workplace. God starts here and emanates out. And a lot of times what happens is people get touched by God in personal transformation, but it dies at the relational level because they're not willing to hold the line until that becomes permanent. Let me say it again. You're not really changed until the people closest to you begin to adapt to the new you. And that's not on them, that's on you. My, my mom and dad, it wasn't wrong that they were holding their breath wondering if I was going to come in drunk because I had fulfilled that expectation so many times. I had to develop new, I had to create a new history with my family. And so tra the, the transformation in me had to include that. I've seen people who've had issues in their life, moral failures and sin in their life, they repent and then they demand that their family accept this repentance. We don't have that luxury of demanding that others accept our repentance. That's between them and the Lord. 
And in fact, when we get bent out of shape and begin to make those demands, what we're simply doing is reinforcing in their mind that we really haven't changed. Because that is an act of selfishness. I had to earn the trust of my family. And that takes time. And that's part of relational transformation. Your personal growth must begin to affect your relationships. To rearrange how you do relationships or it will die. Your change will be temporary. A shift in your relationships is the final stage of personal transformation. Without that, you will succumb to the peer pressure to go back. This is precisely why Jesus spoke of the relational toll of following him. He said, if you leave father or mother, sister or brother, for the sake of me, he knew that there are times that happens, that it will affect your relationship and you'll actually lose very precious relationships in deferring to Jesus. Not everyone will go with you. Even your most healthy relationships will experience growing pains. And again, this is an essential element of discipleship that we have got to understand. As you commit to the changes you experience and hold to that commitment through relational upheaval, you begin to establish healthy culture around you. That culture, the relational value system you establish, actually becomes a safeguard against the enemy's intrusion in your life. The devil knows he cannot attack healthy people, emotionally healthy people. And so what he has to do, for instance, let me, let me put it this way. When the enemy gets on his radar a church that's making a difference in a region, and it's not just about breakthrough spiritually, you can have a church that has tremendous breakthrough, they can have revival, God can begin to move powerfully in their midst, but if they're not backfilling that experience, those encounters with God, with personal transformation and then relational cultural change, then that that experience of revival will be temporary. Because what will kill most revivals is the, not, not our relationship with God, it's our relationship with each other. People get offended. People get thin with each other. And so we've got to establish that, that healthy way of doing life together, not being offended, working through our offenses, working through, allowing those relationships to expose things in our life and working through that rather than just pushing away from people because all of a sudden they've seen the real us. And if we'll stay in the pocket of those relationships, that's where real transformation begins to happen. There's a synergy that begins to happen in our lives. It becomes a greenhouse of real growth. We've talked about it many times. Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell in unity together. It is like the oil that flowed down Aaron's beard even to the edges of his garment. It is as if the dew of Mount Hermon would fall on Mount Zion. Scripture says that's where God commands his blessing. God commands a blessing when we learn to do life together and we work through our relational conflict. And conflict will come because we're fallen people and we're in, the, we're in a process of growing and too often what happens is people just check out. Well, I'm going to abandon that relationship and plug into a new one. And they forfeit the, the character change and the transformation that God could have done in them through that relationship. 
And so we've got to learn. Longevity in our relationships are essential for us to really grow up. Because it's the people you've been doing relationships with for a long time that really know you. One of the, one of the keys to people that struggle with dysfunction in their life is they're always going to a new set of people and a, new whole, a whole new batch of compassion to look for advice from. They wear out this last group of people, so then they look for another group of people. And they're looking for fresh compassion. And what you need to do is you need to hang with the people that you've already burned through their compassion and now they're ready to hold your feet to the fire. And those are the relationships that are really transformative. So relationships are a huge part of the Christian life. And there's something about that, that, that moist, hot atmosphere, that greenhouse effect of people who live not only in relationship with God, but in relationship with one another, in unity together. Doesn't mean that they always agree, but they keep that bond of relationship. And when we do that, there creates a synergy in the room. One sends a thousand to flight, but two ten thousand. There's a multiplication in what God can do through people who hang together in unity. And there's a limit with what God can do with the person who won't hang together in relationship. You diminish the impact of your life. Healthy cultures, number one, the key to moving from experience to transformation. It is the key to permanency. I can't tolerate, personally, I cannot go through another move of God without seeing more gains established. I'm not interested in great services if it's not gonna translate into transformed lives. It's too painful. If we learned anything in the 90s is that a church can have a move of God and end up in a worse condition after the fact. You heard me right. A church can actually end up in a worse place because they didn't translate what God did in them to what God is doing between them. And the whole thing implodes. And it creates a cynicism. This been there, done that syndrome. And they, they had just enough of a revival to be inoculated to the next one. I'm not interested, I already tried that. And it gives a bad name to the outpouring of the Spirit, which is a tragedy because it is the hope of America. But we need to allow those things to happen in us. Jesus put it this way, he said, when a, when a strong man comes into a house, when an evil spirit comes into a house and he's driven out of a, of a man, of a house, it says he will go to the dry places looking for rest. And what Jesus insinuates, I want to say it's Matthew 12, he insinuates that an evil spirit needs a human host to find rest. He's looking for a place to rest, and when he can't find it, he'll come back and it says, he'll look into the windows of that house, and he refers to the individual as a house in which he lives, and he will find it in order, swept clean, and uh, unoccupied, swept clean and in order. It's not good enough to have your life in order. Matter of fact, a lot of American Christianity, that's what it's about, putting your life in order. Five steps to a good marriage, three steps to good friendships, and all this stuff, but it's not really teaching you to be occupied and possessed by the living God. And I don't say that 
as much as a criticism is just we've got to guard against that. But that, that, that evil spirit will come back and look in the windows of that house. The Greek word that Jesus uses there is oikos, like the yogurt. Missiologists use that word. It refers to the, the spheres of your relationship. Missiologists, those that study missions and, and uh, you know, evangelism. They use that term to sum up the spheres of your relationship and your influence. Are you stewarding your oikos? Because the word does mean a house, but it also means a household and a family and your relationships. So listen to what Jesus is saying there. When the enemy is displaced out of a portion of your life, when you bring it back to him, oh, I just lost something. Oh, that was a different one. Well, we'll just use it. The, the uh, because I'll grunt if I bend that low. It, uh, if you, so, you 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 reintegrate. There was a part of your life that you were hiding, and that's where the enemy hides his activity in your life, and he can torment you in private. He can he has access to your mind because you're not bringing it into the light for the blood of Jesus to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Sin grows in the dark. So as we bring that before some people we can trust and we begin to live in transparency, the enemy is driven out of that house. But he'll go and what he'll do is he'll return at an opportune time and he'll look into the windows of your relationships. He's wanting to see, is this thing been made permanent? Are you living different? The avenue by which the enemy gains re-entrance into our life is through dysfunctional relationships. Those areas that we haven't changed and established. When you really change, you don't have to worry about falling into the old behavior because the, con the internal context in which all of that was bred is gone. You're not, you're not drawn to that anymore. All sin has a dysfunctional backdrop, a dysfunctional context. There's belief systems and behaviors that accommodated that sin, that, that act, that, that addiction in your life, or whatever it is, fill in the blank. And as we change not only the behavior, we stop doing those things, but we change what we believe and therefore we change how we behave and we restructure our relationships so the enemy comes back and he looks in, he doesn't even recognize the house anymore. The walls are changed. You've moved where the kitchen used to be is now a bathroom. And where the bathroom used to be is now the master bedroom. You've so transformed that he thinks, I don't recognize this. I don't have a way in anymore. I'm going to go find someone that's easier to enter. And so relational change, relational transformation, or healthy culture is a protection, a safeguard against the enemy gaining re-entrance into your life. Because the enemy will come back and he will examine your relationships. How many of you were raised in church and went to Bible camp? You went to youth camp. How many of you had your world rocked in youth camp? Every year you got saved and resaved and born again again. I got born again again every year that I went to camp. 
had my world rocked. And I look back and I'm, I'm very grateful for those times because God, God touched me in such a way I couldn't escape from that. And there was always this encounter back there that I knew anchored me. I couldn't ever become an atheist. You couldn't talk me out. Even in my drunken stupor, I'd tell people it's real because of what happened to me. God had happened to me. But the problem was, is that I'd have an event, an encounter, and then I'd come back and plug it into the old relationships. And the culture would overwhelm the immature character, and I'd go right back. That's why we've got to change our relationships. When we get saved, we need to get plugged into a church with other believers. You've got to find people that will run with you and become, they're they're living in the way that you want to live. And they won't run with you if you're running in that old way. And the fact is that a lot of us as believers, there, there's certain things we took, you know, we let go of. You know, we, we don't go out and get hammered on Saturday night anymore. We don't run around on our spouse. But there's other more culturally acceptable things that we still partake of. And the people we're running with accommodate those things. And if you want to up your sanctification, if you want to grow, then it's going to affect those relationships. And some of those people won't grow with you. But you've got to be willing to leave father and mother, sister and brother. And so what happens in our life as we're growing, there's always this transformation. And part, part of new seasons in our life really does include new relationships. And sometimes the old relationships are the ones that become the new relationships because there's a synergy as we're growing. It causes everyone else around us to grow, and we all grow together. But the sad fact is not everybody will take the journey with you. Moves of God not only take a large group of people and move them into their new season, it also drives others out of the church. I'll never forget when we were in the old building on the other side of town, there was a gal that called me. She, she had some family. This is going to bother me. I resisted groaning. I really wanted to, though. I'm telling you, I felt it. it uh, we, we began to have, God began to really move over in that little building. And I remember one Sunday, this, this uh, one young family, her family was here from out of state. And there was a bunch of them there. She came up for prayer. Power of God hit her. Boom, she hit the floor. And no sooner did she hit the floor than she jumped back up, did not look happy, and went and sat down. That afternoon, she called me. It was, it was an interesting conversation. She said, Pastor, I, uh, um, uh, um, I, uh, I just want you to know I know this is real. Okay, bye. Click. Okay. It was just, she, she wanted to validate. She knew it was real. About three months later, she called and she said, listen, I don't want this kind of church. I just want a church I can go to, hear a sermon, sing some songs, and go home. I don't want all this other stuff. And she left the church. It was actually the water level of the Spirit that drove her out because she wanted to stay where she was, and we weren't staying where we were. God had done something in us, and we were all hungry. The story of that family in the coming days was a tragic one. The whole family was blown apart. It's a tragic, tragic story. We've got to be careful. We've got to move with God. And we've got to 
establish those changes in our personal life and allow them to transform our relationships and choose Jesus over the most precious people in our life. And the best way to steward your most precious relationships is to put Jesus over them. Oh my, I didn't know it was this late. Okay, I got two more points. I'm just going to read them. Stand so you'll know I'm going to quit. I can feel doubt entered the room right when I said that. A spirit of unbelief filled the atmosphere. Okay, let me just read these three points and we'll close, okay? Healthy culture is, number one, the key to moving from experience to transformation. It's the key to permanency. Number two, it's a safeguard against demonic assault. Much of what we call demonic oppression is actually the fruit of unhealthy relationships. That doesn't negate the role, the activity of, the, of a very real devil. It does, however, define his entry point. He rides in. When, when, the Lord, when, when the enemy sees a church that's going after God, and knows they're going to make an impact, and they're tending to their relationships, and they're willing to grow, and we're working on this stuff. We're going after kingdom principles, not just of how to have breakthrough in the heavenlies, but how to have breakthrough with one another. And we're willing to do life together and work through conflict rather than just, I get mad at you, so I'm going to find another church. I'm not saying you have to go here forever. God may lead you to go to another church, and that's fine. You need to follow Jesus, but leave for the right reasons. Amen? Don't leave because you're ticked at somebody you're sitting next to. So what the enemy has to do is he has to find the back of some dysfunctional person to ride in on and try to affect that. But healthy culture is a bulwark against that because healthy culture doesn't tolerate that kind of divisiveness. We just, hey, man, we don't do that here. We love you, but we don't gossip here. Don't do that. And people are shocked when people say that kind of stuff. And they'll either grow or go. (laughs) But it protects everyone else. Culture is a protection against demonic assault. And number three, it is the bridge between personal growth and ministry. Personal fruit and seeing that fruit begin to change the world beyond you. Amen? All right, lift your hands. Father, I bless each of these this morning. I thank you, God, for your word. And Jesus, we're asking that you would transform us. Lord, we're asking that when the enemy comes and looks in our, the windows of our house, he will not recognize. We have renovated. We've added on. We have, there, there, it's a brand new home, and it's built with much better materials than the original place he used to live in. Hallelujah. Lord, we ask that you would help us, God, to do life together. Lord, you're hungry for more than just a me. You want a we to inhabit. There's a reason God says, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. There's, there, there is an element of his nature, character, and power that he will not commit to the individual, but he is willing to commit to the corporate body. So Lord, we ask, send it, God. Find us worthy because of how you've transformed us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to help more people hear this message, you can get the word out by subscribing and sharing it on social media. If you'd like to support the ministries of Heartland Church, you can do so at heartlandchurchonline.com slash give.